Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome, welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is ED ECMO. All right, ED ECMO. It's Zach Shiner, and it is May 2020. Uh, last month, we talked about aortic dissection. And oh, thank you for all the comments. All the stuff that's come back is amazing. I'm going to hold some of this kind of tight because uh, I think there's some going to be some new data we have, some new information over the next couple of months that will make that whole conversation so interesting, so interesting. And so last month we had a whole lot of Garrett Sterling on the show, and guess what? We've got him back today. Garrett, thanks for joining us. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for having me here. Oh, so this month we're going to try something a little bit different. We're going to try the Journal Club. Because, uh, you know, one of the, the cool things that I love to do is I love to review articles. And several of these articles we're going to look at today have been articles that have kind of come through the press, got to be able to be one of the initial reviewers, and, and now they're out in print. So we can talk about them. And I think they're game changers. I think they're ones that can actually apply to us, not only from the ECMO standpoint, but also from the resuscitation standpoint. So today we're going to have two separate arms. We're going to have the arm of... How do we do ECPR and ECMO better? And then how do we run those resuscitations best so that we can even get to the idea of talking about uh, ECMO codes? Sound good, Garrett? Yeah, it sounds great. I mean, these papers are hot off the press and super exciting. So Yeah, and some of these are even still in press. So I'll, I'll say all of this, some of this data will be sort of with caveats and make sure you, you go to the formal paper when it finally comes out. But I think we can get the basic gist of it and, and, uh, and move on from there. So I think we have more or less five topics today. And the first one that I want to jump into is about dual sequential defibrillation. Now, I, uh, I'm good friends with Sheldon Cheskas, who is the author of the paper that just came out. Big paper. Uh, I'll tell you, I interviewed him for EMRAP, but with all this COVID stuff, that whole interview got sidelined. It's not going to come out for several more months. So I think it's important that we talk about this because it's a, it's what, in my feeling, and I'll, and I'll just start off with saying that I'm fairly biased with it. Over the years, I felt like dual sequential defibrillation has its advantages. But I think actually this paper actually makes us maybe more in favor of that. What do you think, Garrett? Yeah, yeah, I I totally agree. Do you do you routinely do this on your on your refractory VFib cases? So I would say it's been few and far between. My anecdotal experience has been positive, and maybe that's why I have this bias towards it. But yes, they are few and far between. So let's just go real briefly, kind of through the back of this. Through the years, there have been a number of case reports about dual sequential. One of the big problems with it is you never know quite when they're getting it. Are they getting it for the 75th to the 76th shock, or are they getting it on the second shock? Like when are they getting it in the resuscitation? Because clearly some people are far too dead for this to be beneficial. The second thing with these case reports, some of them being positive, some of them being negative, is that you don't have great outcome data. There's not randomized. Uh, you don't know what the if they're comparing apples to apples. And so, so that has been one of the complaints. The big other elephant in the room with all of this has been, can you hurt your defibrillator? Can you actually blow up the machine by doing this? And this paper addresses all of these. 
So, uh, Garrett, what did you glean from this paper? Uh, well, I think just the, the the brief overview of this paper is they did a three-arm feasibility trial just to make sure that it was safe and that they could do this if they wanted to on a larger scale. Uh, option number one, standard anterolateral placement of your pads. Just do your normal defibrillation. Keep going up until you don't feel like going anymore. Uh, option two was after three shocks using the standard approach, you switch to... Um, dual sequential defibrillation, you do uh, one set of pads anterolateral, one set of pads anterior-posterior, and very interestingly, they, they, they pretty clearly defined how they're going to push the button. Because that's another thing that, that in these dual sequential defibrillation studies, sometimes, you know, they're, it's all different. You know, sometimes they're pushing at the same time, sometimes they're introducing a pause. So here they introduced just the briefest pause to make sure that it was actually sequential defibrillation between, between the two shocks. And so on shocks four and above, they got that. And then on the third arm, they did, they did something really cool, which, which I hadn't heard too much about before, which is this vector changing approach. Basically, the idea is they just switched from anterolateral placement of the pads to anterior-posterior placement of the pads, and they just tried a different vector approach for shocks four and on. Um, and, you know, the, the basic, the, it's a feasibility study. So, so what they were looking for is, is it safe? Can they do it? And the answer is yes, it's safe. They can do it. Um, but I think there's, there's a lot of interesting physiologic points and, and technical points about it. it. It was a super interesting study. Okay, so the idea that they had to push them at two separate times was direct, directly related to the fact that this previous annals uh, case report about us destroying the defibrillator. So they said, we, <laughs> we want it to be so that there's no millisecond overlap between the two, that you have to push one and then push the other, and therefore you're not going to damage the defibrillator. I think Sheldon would agree that, that that's kind of hogwash like you're no human is going to be able to push it at exactly the same time uh it's also that there is some uh capacitance i mean they have to go through the impedance through the whole thing so there i think the whole idea of, of damaging the defibrillator is still out there but for sheldon he wanted to make sure that that was not a part of this none of their defibrillators got injured in the making of this study so yeah, the, the the vector change thing I think is so fascinating. So if the shock was delivered AL and it didn't work, a clear next logical thing is to change the vector. And so in this study, it actually showed that that those people got the best ROSC rates. That when you just change the vector that you got a better chance of having return of spontaneous circulation than even the dual sequential. Sort of interesting data, but I think that the difference between the two is very marginal, and the difference between that and the standard approach was very large. So I believe the numbers were around 39 and 40% for the uh, ROSC rate for people who got defibrillated with either dual sequential or with vector change, and around in the 25% range when you had the regular defibrillation. Yeah, I mean, it's a super, super interesting concept. The idea that, that you could just switch the placement of the pads and get basically all of the benefit that you would get from these these dual pads. I mean, I think I use the dual pads. I think they're great. I, you know, we don't get these cases 
you know, every day in the ER, but when we do, I, I kind of look forward to the dual pads, but there's a lot of limitations to the dual pads. You have to grab a second machine, you have to flip them and place them on, you have to time it. If people in the room don't really know what you're doing, then you're kind of freaking out the other people in your room. Uh, and so, you know, there's some, there's some hindrance to using the, 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 the dual sequential method that's all eliminated if you just switch the placement. And so if you get all of the benefit without any of the hassle, it, it just, it's a great idea. Well, okay. So let's, let's take a step back. Cause you still, you, well, you do get the benefit of not having to have a second machine, but you have to then flip the patient or pull them up and then get the pad, change it from AL to AP. Uh, if you're going to do this vector change approach. So there's a little bit of effort into it, but I agree. It's a, it's a, relatively simple thing that might give us most of the benefit yeah totally do you do you routinely wait when you get an in-hospital in emergency department cardiac arrest do you routinely wait till shock four before switching your pads or defibrillation attempts well i saw i'll tell you i talked to sheldon about this many months ago and since that time i have uh i have been doing more of the vector change idea uh it's not it's not totally simple, right? And everybody kind of looks at you like, what are you doing? Uh, I think one of the key characteristics here, and this goes beyond just this study, is that you got to make sure you get the, the first pads on correctly as well. So when you do the AL, you're going to have to make sure that they're not way down on the stomach, not way up on the chest. And then when you switch, maybe when you switch, it's because this heart is a little bit different. This heart has more myocardium in the posterior aspect. There's more of that, that posterior ventricle uh, acting as the nidus for repeat uh, VF uh, starting. And so, yeah, I think it makes sense to go to that approach. Now, I don't think that, I think this is in this feasibility style. Yes, it's like we can't make a definitive di or conclusion from this, but this is the biggest trial that we've had so far and certainly the only random randomized controlled trial so far. And so, I think that both of these methods seem to be superior than the standard approach and probably worthy of our consideration for uh, management change even now. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, uh, you know, we're, we're in terms of hard, hard evidence, I don't think it, it, it exists quite yet. But in terms of, I can tell you my, my current practice, if I get one of these cases in the ER, I'll put on anterolateral pads for the initial first shock, just because it's easier and you don't have to put the you don't have to put a pad on their back during CPR, I'll give them the first shock. I'll give them the second shock. But if they're still in V-fib after the second shock, uh, I had been doing dual sequential defibrillation for shock number three, thinking I should try something different. And I've had good success with dual sequential defibrillation. And I think moving forward, I might just. I might just try this vector changing. It seems easier. I don't have to grab a second device. Uh, it seems to make sense to me. Uh, they they talked in the article about that nidus and the posterior ventricle and 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 getting the shock to align, you know, through the longitudinal axis of these myocytes. And all, all of this makes it just makes a lot of sense. You know, it's it's one of those rare things in medicine where you read it and you're like, oh, that that's all very that yeah, that sounds great. You know. Okay, so I. Uh, Great study. Sheldon did a great job. He's going to continue to do the 900 patient study that they're working on right now to go beyond feasibility and actually show statistically significant benefit, but we'll have to wait a few more years for that. 
Uh, I would encourage you also to listen to the interview in at EM Rap in the next couple of months for with actually Sheldon on this because he, he gives a lot of insight onto that as well. All right, moving on to the next paper. It's COVID season and they are talking about prone CPR. Garrett, have you have you heard of this? Have you done this before? No, I have I have neither heard of it nor done it before. Have you? Uh, I have not, but but I have to say this this little rabbit hole that I've gone down now with this is uh, is compelling. So I had to pull out the papers. In fact, I couldn't even get it from our library. I had to go order the paper. Uh, Two thousand three. That doesn't. It's not so long ago, is it? I mean, is that is seventeen years now ancient? I, I guess I might be dating myself for the resuscitation um, where they did this, maybe the most compelling evidence for prone CPR. And I don't know if I you mean, could, go ahead. I think the idea of prone CPR is very cool. Uh, the practicality of doing it seems almost impossible. <laughs> <laughs> so in this 2003 study though, they take these patients, I mean, this is why I can't believe it, it could even get done then, is they take patients that have already had 30 minutes of chest compressions and they flip them. Half of them they do standard and then half of them they flip and they do another 15 minutes of chest compressions on them and decide uh, through an arterial line whether they're getting better maps or not. And it turns out that they are about 14 millimeters of mercury better when they flip them over. They stick like a, it almost looks like a weight, one of those weights you'd put on for... uh, for hanging someone if you're trying to relocate their distal radius fracture. They put that in the, underneath the sternum so they give some sort of counter pressure and then they just start pushing on their back. Uh, I don't know. In the day and age where we're doing all these prone intubations where we have patients that are even prone uh, without intubation for COVID, uh, maybe this makes sense. Maybe, maybe. Although I think it would be uh, significantly easier if we had some sort of, uh, you know, like a bed that could rotate with us or, or something, something that could, that could, I, I just, I'm trying to picture actually pushing on somebody's back in the ER while trying to resuscitate them. <laughs> okay. So I, I think I'll give you the idea that if you had a traditional arrest and they're already laying on their back, that you would not flip them. But if you had just intubated them or they were already prone uh, I think this this literature gives you a little bit of credence to say that if you put the the chest board in front of their chest, just like you'd put in front of their back, and you start pushing, that you could get some adequate uh, maps with that. Oh, I see where you're going with this. Yeah, I think that makes sense. So if you for our ICU colleagues upstairs, they're already prone, they're already intubated, they're already on all these things, and then they arrest. Do you need to flip them back to be supine? to start chest compressions or can you do chest compressions while they're prone? And I think, I think that's a, I think that's a great time to just continue while they're prone. Yep. And I think that's what this, this study says. Now the, the call out in resuscitation this month was, Hey, this, this problem exists. What do you think about it? And so I, I think, think it sounds reasonable. I, I think there's not definitive data, but I think enough here is we're yeah, doing prone CPR with an appropriate sternal, something hard on your sternum so that you're not just pushing right into the bed uh, makes sense. Yeah, very cool. Just got to get that board in there. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so that's number two. Uh, Number three here I thought was a very good study. It's the, it's out of UCLA, it's Hadaya, and they, they go, this is really more of a U.S.-based 
data set. And since all the rest of the world has this data so much more easily at their hands than we do, I thought this was an impressive study that got done. And they looked at what's happening with ECLS for both in-hospital and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. And whenever you get these large data sets, you can, you can make some some observations. Now, some of them might be not be causal, it might just be associative, but I, I do find this study interesting. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I thought this was great. Even just looking at these graphs in here and watching watching the, the numbers go up is, is exciting. You know, it's exciting for the future of medicine. So it was, they were trending uh, how often eCPR had been performed for in and, in and out of hospital cardiac arrest and rates of survival for those cases. And you just see you just see the numbers going up for both. You know, rate of survival is going up, the frequency of it's going up, and I I think it's really amazing that we're that we're saving lives by doing this. Okay, so the study was two thousand five to two thousand fourteen. So it's still you know six years ago since this data is even being taken place. I think yeah, some generalizations you can say is that over that time per- period, the people who got ECMO are now surviving more. Now, there's several things in this study that are very misleading, and I think they actually should have changed a lot of how they use their nomenclature, because they called them out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. But really, they didn't, because this is a national inpatient sampling, they don't have any of the patients that died pre-hospital or in the ED. And so it's, it's really the out-of-hospital cardiac arrest data is of those patients that got put on ECMO and got admitted to the hospital, so they didn't die uh, in the ED, how many of those patients survived? And the answer is a lot. In fact, like 50% of them survive uh, once you make it to an in-hospital state. And that's what our study also showed from Sharp, is that two-thirds of the patients, once you got past that initial phase of getting out of the ER, into the hospital, into a bed, that your chance of walking out of the hospital was more than half. And so uh, this study to me uh, should, the nomenclature should change from out of hospital cardiac arrest and change to, hey, if you put somebody on ECMO and they're not immediately dead, they're prob- they have a, a reasonable chance of survival, meaning that your ICU bed does not get bogged down with patients who are just going to die when you start looking at these traditional 10% uh, survival or even 20% survival rates. Yeah, I think I think that's a fantastic point because you know some of the the theoretical pushback we get when we're saying hey we're going to put all these people on ECMO is don't don't fill up our hospital with patients that have no possibility of good neurologic outcome on this expensive device you know and and that's just not that's not what we've been seeing in the past people are doing really well when when they get on you know some of the other interesting things that. There's a lot, obviously there's a lot of confounders here because it's not a they're not trying to find cause they're just telling us the numbers. But uh, I, I find it fascinating that you know there's been no hard universal rules on who is getting put on ECMO and who's getting eCPR. It's kind of a hospital by hospital decision for hey you know our age cutoff is 70 or 75 or whatever it is, and yet overall we're just seeing better survival. So I think that's kind of interesting too. Definitely. Yeah, so so many good things out of this. Like even when you start looking at the insured and uninsured rates that they put on here, uh, it there's more uninsured on the ECMO side, which is I think cool that we're not, doesn't look like there's wallet biopsies going on, at least in general in the US. 
and that those numbers are relatively low. Now, that could represent, uh, you know, for certain hospitals must be much higher. But when you start looking at the economics of this, can you sustain an ECMO program? I think this data is at least something that you could use at your institution. Yeah, yeah, totally. Okay, uh, let's go on to the early CT after ECMO. Uh, what'd you think of that one, Garrett? Yeah, I thought I thought this one was phenomenal. Um, this is uh, this is um, a paper where they they did CT scans. They call them full body CTs. On they tried to get them on every patient on ECMO who had eCPR, and then just looked at the rates retrospectively of how many people had real injuries. And it is, shock, it is shockingly high the number of uh, real significant injuries. Uh, that they found doing doing these per doing these CT scans. So they saw ten percent of the patients had an intracranial hemorrhage. Twenty three percent of the people had either a hemo or pneumothorax. They said that they found in almost twenty percent of their patients futile findings on the CT scan. Meaning, let's stop everything. They're not going to survive. We can we can start minimizing care at this time. And then they found 16% of the, the time, they found actually the cause of their arrest by doing the CT scan. So it, it's a good study, and it really pushes the point on whether we should be doing a CT scan right after they, before they leave the ER. What do you think, Garrett? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I totally agree. Uh, I had been ordering CTs on all of my ECMO patients before, but now I'm going to be you know, much more diligent about making sure that they really get done early as opposed to, oh, you know, I ordered it. We'll let the ICU figure it out whenever they get around to it. Because the number of findings that they're, you know, these are, these are practice changing, uh, frequency of findings. The, you know, the ECMO patients, the ECPR patients are not standard patients. They're on anticoagulation. They have other places they need to go. They need to go to the cath lab. They need to go to potentially, you know, separately to IR to get distal cannulas placed. They have a lot of places they need to go that where they're going to be on anticoagulation and, and, uh, knowing ahead of time before they get all these procedures and all these other advanced, um, uh, therapies. Oh, hey, they have a massive head bleed, and they're on they're on anticoagulation. We probably need to make a stop in the OR too if we're going to decompress. Or, you know, hey, we we caused this huge pneumo from the excellent CPR, but now you know they are intubated and on positive pressure, and we need to decompress that. Um, I, I thought it was fascinating to, to find the rates of findings here. Yeah, and I. I think back to patients where you just get frustrated. You're like, I, I don't understand why this is not working or something is just not right. And how often the time could it have been that there was a pneumothorax that went undiagnosed or yeah. or something else that uh, that you could have helped with a CT scan? Maybe their flows were down because they're bleeding out of a, a mammary artery or something. So, yeah, I think this, this study is good. Uh, the one caveat I would say, and I tried to piece this out in the paper, which is a little bit difficult, I think the data that they used or their methods was that they had to get a CT scan within 24 hours. Um, they do comment in the paper that they said this immediately after their arrest, they get the CT scan. So there's a little bit of a nuance there that I'm not quite sure. Uh, my feeling, though, is if you've got these findings that and you're in the ER already, you should just stop at the CT scanner before you go anywhere. Yeah, my, my impression of the study was... They were really trying to get them within four hours. They mentioned four hours, and then they considered it early as long as they got it within 24. But, you know, finding out that your patient on thinners has a big head bleed in 
23 hours seems kind of in a delayed fashion to me. The question is, do you stop at CT before going to the cath lab? You know, if it's the middle of the night and cath team's going to take an hour to get in, yeah, for sure, stop at CT. But if both are open in front of you, which one would you send them to? They're both open. Where do do they go? They go Mm. to cath lab or CT? I think I, I might go CT. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the CT scan gives you enough information. And actually, like a big tension pneumothorax is more important than a closed coronary artery on ECMO. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, that's super reasonable. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of actionable findings that they're finding on these CTs. If you find something totally futile, then you, know, you don't need, to, you don't need to, to, to spend the time in the cath lab. Mm-hmm. If you find a mass of head bleed, you know, maybe you have to rethink where you're going. If you find that tension pneumo, man, you know, I think back to those cases where I put them on ECMO and then I just couldn't get their pressure, you know, their, their pressure up. I wonder how many of them had that big pneumo, you know, that I didn't, that I didn't decompress. So I agree with you. I think, I think I'm going to send them to CT first. What type of CT are you going to order? Cause they kept mentioning full body CT, but not specific, you know, mm. in terms of the exact type. Are but- you, do you have a particular type you're ordering? That's a great question because probably the biggest finding that you want, I mean, not the biggest one, but one of the important ones is do they have a big PE? And so you could say doing a non-contract study would be great because you just get to, you know, take two seconds and you have to have a working IV at that point, but you miss the, the PE. A counter argument to that is that doing a PE study on an ECMO patient is super complicated and you potentially have to turn off the the flows for a brief period of time. So maybe the answer is just get the non-contrast CT scan, deal with the coagulation issues and, and PE questions later. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think this is a good one. If we're going to start doing this on every case, this is a good one to have a discussion with our, with our cardiology team too because I totally agree with you. Getting the non-con is super easy. It's getting the contrast study that can be really, really tricky. But, you know, maybe – our cardiology colleagues could shoot uh, uh, pulmonary angiography in the cath lab, you know, to look for that dissection and lo- or look for the PE or, or, you know, shoot the aortogram to look for the dissection, which could spare us a lot of the hassle of getting the contrast CT downstairs. And then we could shoot a quick non-con and, and punt the PE work up to them. But, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a good one to have, to have a, a team approach on and how we're going to try and do that. Super cool. Okay, so I think take home is CT. You find a lot of stuff. Do it if you can. All right, uh, moving on. The 3D printed eCPR modeling. This is, uh, well, I just think it's cool because, I mean, at Reanimate, this is what I'm so proud of. Like, we have a a phenomenal manufacturing uh, process that just keeps improving. Chris Ho has been doing this for years for us, and, uh, and we've sort of kept how he does this and all the modeling that we've done tight. But uh, but they the authors printed out a, uh, a paper that which is great. They they showed the world how we can do it e- even cheaper and much cheaper than we've done it. So hands off to them. The study basically talks about how do you make a quickly, cheaply reproducible way to teach people how to cannulate, and and so this is something that we would hope can mimic the femoral artery and the femoral vein. We've had problems with this in various ways that we've tried. Uh, we use a cadaver at times to do this just to show you how atherosclerotic those vessels can be as you get older. Uh, this modeling technique, they do 
superimpose the femoral vessels onto the model, but the model is still consisting of latex tubing, very similar to what most of the world is doing for these right now. But I thought it was super cool. What do you think, Garrett? Yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was great. Uh, a few years ago now, I, I, I tried to build one of these models. I, I don't know if you remember, you gave me the parts and said, hey, try and build one of these. And it was so, it, you know, I'm not all that mechanically minded. And it was so tricky to try and get them all to line up and to, to be in the right spot and to make it, you know, look and feel real. And I think 3D printing, it just, it, you know, it's just one of those things, again, that just makes sense. It, it makes sense that we could do this in a better way. And the way that they described it was great and cheap. You know, these models, these models, if you want to buy a model, like a professionally made model, you know, you're looking at 20 plus grand minimum, you know, minimum to, to get it done. And they said they got it done for just two or 3,000. And the majority of that seemed to be the price of getting the printer. So, so yeah. Yeah, five bucks for the, for the reusables. So, or the non-reusables, I should say. Yeah, I, I, it was a great, great paper, and we should all be kind of looking at this for how we're teaching our, our fellow colleagues at our institutions. Okay, last thing here. Uh, the whole idea of having this people not doing chest compressions or resuscitation on people in COVID. Uh, we, there are a couple different papers here. What, what were your thoughts on those, Garrett? Uh, you know, those are, those are tough. Uh, I, I understand the, the concerns and why we may not want to be maximally aggressive on these patients with COVID. You know, they, they do have a pretty high mortality and there is some, some potential danger to, to the, you know, to the medical staff who are, who's going to be doing all this, but it's also, you know, it's antithetical to everything that I've ever tried to do to, to not try and resuscitate these critically ill patients. So it's a, it's, it's a, it's ethically trying for me to, to think about not resuscitating them. How about you? Well, I, I think these papers in my mind are more of a sociologic argument. You can say, because in these two papers, in the Paris study, there was no difference between pre and post COVID era uh, witnessed CPR rates. In Sydney, there seemed to be less people doing uh, cardiac arrest resuscitation after COVID came around. Now, uh, the quality of the studies, I, I don't even want to begin there, and I don't even think that it's worth looking at the differences between Paris and Sydney. I, I just think that it's an interesting thing that comes up, and you wonder, not only for COVID patients, but just for all of our resuscitations, are we going to see a greatly decreased rate of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest resuscitation because of the fear that the patient has COVID. Yeah, uh, I think it's it's pretty reasonable. If you're telling, you know, if you tell the general public appropriately, wear a mask, stay six feet away, are they going to run and do closed chest, chest uh, compressions on somebody that they find down in, in public? I'm not, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Right, right. Or should they, I guess, is the next question. Should they? The prone CPR, maybe we need to teach everybody prone CPR. <laughs> yeah, yeah. don't worry. Just do prone CPR. <laughs> COVID issue. <laughs> okay, well, we fired through a number of different topics here. I hope that was useful. What did you think of the uh, overall, Garrett? Give us some take-home points for today. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's super exciting. You know, there's, there's a lot of... Uh, 
advancements in in resuscitation that are coming in the future and you can kind of see over the horizon that that some things might be changing for the better you know changing um, dual sequential defibrillation to a vector changing approach makes a lot of sense. I'm waiting for the day when we just, uh, instead of the little pads, you know, maybe we'll, we'll put a vest on them and we'll shock them in all 360 degrees around, you know, till they, till they come out of it. And then for CT scanning after, after cardiac arrest, especially when ECPR is performed, I, I think that's, that's enough right now to be totally practice changing, to be, to be kind of a mandatory thing that gets done. There are just so many uh, critical findings that that they picked up that I, I think it's it's going to be super helpful to all of our practice if we just incorporate that. And then the rate of eCPR in general seems to be exploding. It has been in the last decade. Survival's going up. Um, I think the the future of that is going to include coming up with clearer inclusion criteria, exclusion criteria, way, you know, clearer definitions of what really makes out of hospital and in hospital. But it's exciting to see that if you have a out of hospital cardiac arrest and you can, if you can make it to your admission, then you do pretty well. You, you have a really good chance of getting out of the hospital neurologically intact. So it's very, very exciting. Super cool. Okay, so I'm going to put all of these papers into the show notes. You can take a look at all these different questions, and uh, and we love their feedback. It's so good. Uh, Eric dissection from last month was was fantastic. I said, and we'll we'll get circle back to that one again for sure. So from May, from San Diego, Garrett and I signing off. <laughs>